Welcome to this episode in the Australian Navy History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Robert Glockman of the University of Wollongong. This is the first of two episodes which will focus on marine engineering in the Royal Australian Navy. And in this episode, we're going to focus on steam propulsion. To tell this story, I'm joined today by Rear Admiral Trevor Rooting, who joined the Navy in 1968 and qualified both as a marine engineering officer and as a naval architect. He served in both Royal Australian Navy and Royal Navy ships and was the marine engineering officer of the destroyer Perth. He also had senior appointments in Naval Support Command and the Defence Materiel Organisation, where he was head of Maritime Systems. Also with us today is Captain Randall Petrie, who joined the Navy in 1979 as an apprentice marine technical propulsion, known as an MTP, and transferred to marine engineering officer in 1997. He served in HMA ships Brisbane 2, Hobart 2, Melbourne 3 and Newcastle. Randall only recently retired from his position as Director Maritime Docks and Marine Services at Capability Acquisition and Sustainment Group. And finally today we're joined by Warrant Officer Graham Johnson who joined the Navy in 1968 as an apprentice engine room artisifer and he served a large part of his seagoing career in HMAS Perth and left the Navy in 1988. Thank you all for joining me. First off let's set the scene. Trevor when the Navy's first fleet arrived in Sydney Harbour in 1913, the battle cruiser Australia, the cruisers Sydney and Melbourne, along with the torpedo boat destroyers Parramatta, Warrego and Yarra, were all steam turbine ships. Can you briefly tell us about how this machinery plant worked? Certainly all of the newly built warships had steam turbines either connected directly or by reduction gears to each of their propeller shafts. To create the steam to turn the turbines, various makes and sizes of boilers were installed, depending on the number of propeller shafts. For example, the Battlecruiser Australia had two paired sets of Parsons direct-drive steam turbines housed in a separate engine room driving two shafts. The wing shaft of each set was coupled to the high-pressure ahead and astern turbines and the low-pressure turbines to the inner shafts. Turbines were powered by 31 Babcock and Wilcox water tube boilers in five boiler rooms. The th three cruisers had coal shoveled into the furnace by stokers, but the coal was also sprayed with furnace fuel oil to help it burn hotter. The Chatham-class light cruisers Sydney and Melbourne had four Parsons steam turbines fed by 12 Yarrow boilers across four shafts. However, the river-class torpedo boat destroyers were modernised in terms of having three Yarrow oil-fired uh, boilers connected to the Parsons turbines. They used three-drum boilers of a more modern design than the cruisers, and each of these uh, boilers operated at about 250 psi, or 1.7 megapascals. Each of the main propulsion turbines had multiple rows of blades through which the steam was directed for a head propulsion and only a small number of rows of blades in the opposite direction for stern propulsion. The amount of steam sent to each turbine was controlled by large throttle valves and these were manned by sailors who watched the telegraph indicators from the wheelhouse that indicated ahead or astern and how many RPM were required in the propeller shaft. The steam injected into the turbines was condensed back into water by large volumes of cold seawater pumped through hundreds of tubes in the main condenser that sat below the turbines. This condensed water was then pumped back into the boilers where it was heated again by the furnace. Many of the lower pressure pumps for water and fuel 
including for transferring the furnace fuel oil from the storage tanks or powered by steam reciprocating engines. Now, Randall Petrie, the old cruiser Encounter was also taking part in this fleet entry, but she had a triple expansion engine. What was that? The triple expansion engine is one that utilises the steam pressure, or the energy if you like, as it expands over three stages. If you could imagine a three-cylinder reciprocating engine, uh, it's very similar to that. However, each of these cylinders have a different size, and of course that's to take effect of the pressure as it decreases and the heat uh, dissipates as it goes through this. Um, the first pass cylinder, for example, is, is the smallest one. That's the high pressure end of what you'd call a compound or, or triple expansion engine. And the last one is a much larger one. Uh, and this is regulated uh, similar to, um, you know, valves on a, on, a, on a normal internal combustion engine. It lets the steam in and out through the different stages. Of course, you don't expand all the steam in each stage, and, and that's the idea of having this compounded approach. Um the triple expansion, as I said, also known as a, as a compound engine, is simply because it has more than one cylinder. So there's nothing more complex about it. There are four-stage cylinders. Um, you know, and a simple one might be on, on a steam locomotive where you've got a single or, or double-acting piston, but only one. Um, with respect to, to other ships, um, I mean, in my time, the only one I really witnessed, and I didn't witness hands-on, but was around, was uh, HMAS Kimbler, uh, affectionately known as a snail. Uh, and that was due to a slow speed, and that, and that was typical of those reciprocating type uh, ships of their time. Um, they weren't very efficient, but nonetheless, they had a high power to weight ratio. And, and what Kimbler was well known for, not only being slow and, and nicknamed the snail, but, but the fact that uh, she had the unique ability to, to travel around or, or transit at about three knots forever, essentially. You know, as long as there was enough fuel, uh, enough water, the system worked well enough, she could slog away. Um, most others can't do that. And, uh, you know, to the previous comments about turbines, it, it becomes quite tricky when you're trying to manage a steam turbine spinning around and, and up and down in three knots, particularly by hand. Graham Johnson, the, the descriptions of the engines we've had so far seem to indicate that would take a lot of sailors to operate them and quite a range of different skill sets. Now, the sailors who did operate these plants were a mix of stokers, artificers and shipwrights. Could you tell us a bit about the different roles? Yes, sure. And uh, I'm sure that I'll probably miss some of the duties. Uh, apologies for that. The shipwrights, uh, I'd probably call that as a ship's plumber, if you like. They were responsible for ship stability. They were experts in firefighting, uh, welding, fiberglassing, carpentry, sheet metal work, to say just a few, uh, sign writing. They also started to integrate with the, uh, uh, with the artificers in the way that they sat their uh, auxiliary watchkeeping certificate and went on to a boiler watchkeeping certificate. It was really a time of change for the shipwrights. They had been trained principally in uh, woodwork and sheet metal. They built a boat uh, as a final test job at Marimba. Uh, but they were changing more towards a metal technician, sheet metal. Stokers, stokers were g general entry and they uh, were used in all engineering equipment to uh, mainly to operate the boilers and assist in the operation of 
uh, all engineering machinery. Uh, they they were involved with laundry, refueling of the ship, transfer of fuel, boiler water testing, and many other uh, duties. Ship boats, ships boats, etc. Uh, they were general entry, so they did not have a trade, which limited them to some extent with uh, the work they could do. Uh, they were also involved with uh, cleaning of the boilers, tank cleaning, and that uh, changed a lot when we changed from furnace fuel oil to diesel, uh, which was a great thing. The engine room artificers were all tradesmen. They had the direct entry, uh, trained outside, quite often through the railways, or they were trained at Marimba. And they were the senior maintainers and operators of all the warships' mechanical plant, uh, which was refrigeration, air conditioning, diesel generators, ships' boats, steering gear, air compressors, and obviously main propulsion, turbines, gearing and shafting. There was one other group, actually, uh, which were mechanicians, and they were stokers that had been identified as uh, 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 that had skills to enable them to do an adult apprenticeship, which uh, took place at HMAS Narimba and was of two years, and that gave them an adult trade. Well, Randall Petrie, coming to you, we, we've heard now from Graham about how the the different uh, sailor categories. Uh, in the engine rooms were, were trained and what their jobs were. How about the training for officers? What did that look like? Yeah, the training, was, it was an interesting part uh, between the sailors. I mean, I did my time in DDGs as a sailor from, from seaman through to chief. And um, the officers came through and essentially did the same training, but they did it in a in an accelerated or a shortened version of. And, and sometimes that uh, did cause a bit of angst amongst the sailors uh, and officers for that matter because, you know, they always felt they were being squeezed aside to, to, to let the officers through. And, that, and that's fine. But, but I suppose the point that I'd really like to emphasise here is that the the officers did uh, exactly the same training, but just in a tighter, tighter time frame. Um, there was a lot of pressure on the officers at the time, and I, and I say this from you know my view as a sailor in DDGs. Um, there was a lot of pressure to, for them to get these um, their, their auxiliary watchkeeping certificates, their boiler ticket, their engine room tickets in in really tight time frames. Um, so I, I did have uh, admiration for what they did, whereas the sailor was sort of. You know, if you were lucky to get out of the boiler room in your first two-year posting, then you were considered a bit of a legend, um, quite frankly. You know, to, imagine to go from the engine room, I'm, I'm sure Graham would appreciate this, uh, you go from uh, the boiler room as a, as a sprayer puncher um, over to the engine room in your first thing and become, a you know, of all things, a vappy, you know, the, the guy that looks after the evaporators, you are absolutely screaming up. For an officer, though, uh, within their sort of two-year posting, they essentially had to have their interim ticket. So, you know, boiler rooms, all, all the, all the third-hand watches, all um, back through to the engine room as throttly, then back to cheaper watch, then all the way back to boiler ticket, and from boiler ticket over to the engine room as engine driver, uh, and then eventually moving on to actually being in charge of one of the engine rooms later on down the track. Uh, particularly during special sea duty, uh, the deputy, the engineer would typically go down the space during those um, um, 
evolutions, you know, or, or where it was a heightened heightened risk and, and everyone had to be on, on deck, um, to put it in, in sort of non-military terms, to, to make sure that if anything went wrong, you had the right people in the right places and, and proper command and control. So, yeah, look, there, there, was, um, there was just as much training for the officers and, like I said, they had to do it in a very tight time frame. Um, and it was always debated, uh, this, and, and essentially it still exists today, um, just probably not the same as what we did it, but similar evolution. And I guess, Graeme, just to, to follow on, uh, sorry, Randall, just to follow on there, um, did that mean that you had a number of sailors who would change over, come up from the lower deck to become engineering officers? Was that a, was that a common path? It wasn't in my time. It did happen for sure. Um, I mean, in those days, there, was, there, there seemed to be not a problem with retention or, or you know, people were committed for the long haul. So, uh, you know, I, I was one of those people. But i got to say, in, in sort of the 17 years I did in DDGs per se, and, you know, I could count on, on both hands the number of people that I know from engineering that actually transferred the engineering officer. Um, it was it was probably more common in the at Narimba at the apprentice stage. So in that first six months, you were given the officer, uh, option to go uh, officer transfer or officer cadet, uh, and um, that was taken up at a higher level than probably at sea. Um, during my time, Graham touched on as well. There was there were certain levels or certain skill levels depending on which year you came through Narimba. Um, so. Within the sailors, there was the stokers and then there was the tiffs and, and there was almost a tribal within a tribe sort of thing where you had uh, competition and, and so the competition between the stokers and the, and the tiffs was sort of they were pushed through a little bit faster than the stokers so they weren't happy. The officers came in and sort of jumped the queue on some of that and that's fine. Like I said, it wasn't an issue. It's just the way you had to get people through that system. But to answer your question, not a great deal um, that I recall transferred the officer. And it was quite a complex. I mean, um, I I tried more than once before I actually got through that process, and and I did it early in a piece. Um, But, uh, yeah, not a great deal, to be honest. Trevor, coming back then to um, the light cruisers, Sydney, Hobart and Perth, uh, and moving on then to the the post-war ships such as the aircraft carriers and destroyers. Now, they all had Admiralty three-drum boilers. What, what were these? As the, the name itself indicates, uh, these boilers were a variant of the uh, Yarrow three-drum boiler design that were improved over many years by the UK's Admiralty Fuel Experimentation Station at uh, Haslan in Portsmouth. They comprised one central steam drum at the top connected by hundreds of steam and water tubes to two parallel water drums located below on either side of a central furnace. The steam tubes on one side were arranged in two groups with the superheated tubes between each group. The initial designs operated at about 300 psi and 600 degrees Fahrenheit using furnace fuel oil sprayed into the furnace by specially developed sprayers where steam-driven fans pushed air under pressure in a swirling motion around the fuel uh, sprayer nozzle to optimise combustion. The number of fuel sprayers in use at any time depended on the steam takeoff required to meet the ordered ship's speed. The uh, sailors who uh, became known as sprayer punchers, a very appropriate uh, title because that's what their role was, to push the sprayers in or pull them out from the furnace as required by the boiler steaming petty officer to achieve the steam 
draw-off requirements. Meanwhile, uh, the uh, steamer, the petty officer, had to control manually the uh, steam supply to the furnace fans that supplied air to the boiler. And he had to keep that uh, in the right um, balance to keep uh, optimum fuel air ratio and correct combustion. Too little air would produce black smoke from the funnel and too much air created white smoke, both quite undesirable for ship observability as well as fuel consumption. I came to know the Admiralty three-drum boilers uh, quite personally, especially in the forward engine room of HMAS Melbourne to the aircraft carrier during the 1974-75 period as I achieved a machinery watchkeeping certificate steam or boiler ticket as they were known then, and I personally operated as the boiler PO for some weeks during a RIMPAC deployment, controlling the boilers at uh, full power during a catapult steam receiver charging was always a very exciting time in the tropics with the ship operating at its uh, maximum speed of about 23 knots in tropical conditions and the forward boilers allowed to be elevated to 430 psi for catapult charging, noting that the safety valves were set at 435. Always made for exciting times. <laughs> and listeners may want to go back to uh, last year's two episodes on the aircraft carrier HMAS Melbourne, where life in the engineering department, including the very tropical existence, uh, was vividly recalled. Now, Graeme Johnson, coming to you once again, in 1955, the Navy converted the old Naval Air Station west of Sydney uh, into the apprentice training establishment HMAS Narimba. Now, you passed through Narimba. What was it like, and did it prepare you for your engineering life at sea? It did a marvellous job preparing us all for our life at sea. Narimba was, uh, as you said, an old World, World War II air base. And there were four main hangars which were uh, turned into machine shops and training for aircraft apprentices, uh, shipwrights. And the electricians generally were trained on the other side of the runway uh, in a building set up especially for them. Uh, the training actually took place over three and a half years. There were, uh, it was broken up into seven, six month terms. The first term uh, was common training for everyone, which was a fair amount of parade training, obviously. And at the end of first term, uh, those uh, people were selected for the different trades and hopefully you got the one you wanted, which I did. The training uh, took place pretty well full time. I suppose you could say it was like a boarding school because you were there. Training was always happening, whether it was academic, trade, uh, military, and, of course, sport. There was a high emphasis put on sport. And I don't think I really recognised how good an apprenticeship we did receive until years later because, of course, we did not have to produce for our employer. All we had to do was learn, whereas a civilian apprentice uh, had to actually produce and try and make money for their employer. Narimba, we had our own volunteer band, which was well... Um, uh, it, they did a marvellous job. One of the perks of that, of course, was that it didn't have to do duties such as cleaning, <laughs> cleaning the heads and, and showers, etc. Uh, apprentices were very popular for debutante 
partners for debutante balls in the local area, and uh, many met their future wives that way. We even had uh, a pig farm, which sounds an odd thing for a naval establishment, but it made enough money. It employed uh, we employed one full time civilian pig farmer. The apprentices' working party <laughs> supplied most of the labour. But the sale of the pigs all went into uh, recreational sport gear for the apprentices. So uh, it was a really smart idea. The Navy really did a great job. They also had uh, what they called an approved address system. Because they took young apprentices uh, from 15 and a half, the Navy had a responsibility until they were, I think, 17, and they took that seriously. So for, for an apprentice to go ashore, they set up a system through the chaplaincy generally that a family would be willing to take an apprentice uh, for the weekend, and you, would, you could go to this address. You would have to have a form signed to bring back to say that you had attended so that you were uh, looked after. Trade training was marvellous. We had very skilled instructors and dedicated instructors, and the emphasis was on uh, on repair, on the fact that when you were out at sea, uh, you did not have access to everything. So you couldn't just grab a new part. You had to rebuild it. So machining... Uh, was very, our, our skills were very much uh, uh, machining and repair. We did a lot of ship visits to uh, older ships back then, HMOS Queenborough was one, and uh, we did sea time in HMOS Sydney in between her runs to Vietnam. So uh, that gave us a really good appreciation of sea time. And then in sixth term, we did a fair stint at uh, what was then the Fleet Maintenance Party, working uh, on different ships, assisting the ship's staff. So, Trevor, in 1965, the Navy commissioned the destroyer Perth, which was the first of the three Charles F. Adams-class guided missile destroyers, or DDGs, as they were called. Now, these were the latest word in steam propulsion at the time. Can you tell us why they were such a step change? The Charles F. Adams class DDGs bought this uh, large step change in boiler and steam operating pressures into the RAN. Our Type 12 destroyer escorts had boilers that operated at about 550 psi and 850 degrees Fahrenheit. The Deerings were 650. The DDGs were almost twice that at 1275 psi, 8.8 megapascals for those who were metric, and 1050 degrees. Uh, Fahrenheit superheat temperature and these significant pressures and temperature increases in the DDG boilers and propulsion system provided faster ship acceleration and also top speeds in the order of 33 to 35 or 36 knots. The spreading of four boilers and into two fire rooms as they were called and the propulsion turbines into two separate engine rooms each connected to its own boilers also resulted in better ship resistance to equipment or uh, ship damage in action. The cross-connection of the steam ship 
Systems between the two propulsion units also permitted a very flexible range of propulsion alignments, from one boiler supplying one or both sets of propulsion turbines and shafts through to two, three or four boilers supplying them. The DDGs could cruise at 17 knots on one boiler, and Graham Johnson probably remembers well the number of times we did that in, uh, during the fuel crises in the 80s, and an extremely handy 27 knots on two boilers, which was their normal operating conditions. The high main steam pressure allowed also for a more comprehensive steam turbine set with high pressure, medium pressure and low pressure turbines all connected via double reduction gears to provide 26 megawatts or 35,000 shaft horsepower for each of the two shafts. The much higher steam pressure and temperature, however, meant that every piping connection was more complex and had to be very carefully machined and aligned. Also, some of the pumps, such as the turbo-driven boiler feed water pumps in the fire rooms, operated at 1,450 psi, or 10 megapascals, to put, boiler put water back into the boilers. Precision engineering was needed everywhere on those ships and the steam systems in particular. The Foster Wheeler D-type boilers also had a complex pneumatic automatic combustion control system and water level control, making the boiler operator's tasks both more manageable but also much more efficient. It was certainly a lot easier than in the old Admiralty 3 drum or the Y100 frigate boilers uh, uh, to be able to uh, respond much more rapidly to uh, engine speed changes or in particularly direction changes during uh, rapid manoeuvring. And in my humble opinion, the DDGs were even better after converting the boilers to burn diesel fuel. As Graham had mentioned earlier, uh, cleaning of the uh, boilers was uh, a much easier task under diesel than the previous FFO, and there was much less frequent uh, soot blowing, which made EXOs happier as well. Graham, given that these were such a step change as Trevor's described, now you went straight to a DDG from the Rimba, was, was that exciting to go to one of these ships? Was that considered sort of the, the way to go? Uh, very much so. We, um, back then, the postings to a DDG or the postings to any ships were predicated upon your marks in, in the final term. And after our final exams, we waited with bated breath to see where we stood. <clears throat> and then, of course, we uh, waited on our sea postings and generally the first three or four in the group or the highest markers would go to a DDG or DDGs and I was lucky enough to be one of them. They were new, they were modern, they looked like a warship, they were the epitome of new steam technology. So, yes, it was marvellous. And following on from that, Graham, what was it like in the boiler rooms and the engineering spaces of, of the DDGs? Well, in my humble opinion, I think they were exceptionally well designed and built. Uh, there was good access for both operation and maintenance to all equipment, or almost all equipment. There was excellent communications between the machinery spaces. <clears throat> Pardon me. New innovations, as Trevor mentioned, the uh, air combustion control, automatic combustion control for the boilers, that was a great breakthrough. Uh, Electro-hydraulic steering, 
uh, flash evaporators, the high pressures, uh, high pressures and temperatures made it very interesting. <clears throat> of course, it was very hot. The boiler rooms, even with a good ventilation system in the tropics, were <clears throat> probably up around about 46 degrees. And we didn't have too many overweight stokers or tiffies. The um, engine room wasn't quite as bad. And in some cases, <clears throat> um, in winter crossing the bite or going south about Tasmania, uh, you were looking for a coat to wear, strange as that may seem. And as Trevor mentioned uh, before, the with the unitisation, they had extremely long legs and, uh, and the number of times we went down to one boiler, uh, two main engines or even one main engine trailing a shaft and motor-driven auxiliaries, I think from memory we went from Port Louis and Mauritius to Perth and still had about 38% fuel remaining. Randall, can you tell us a little bit about your recollections of your time in DDGs? And also, as you're doing it, can you just describe for our listeners, you know, how manpower intensive these um, watches were? You know, how many, how, many, uh, how many engineers would you have spread between the different compartments on a normal routine watch, for example? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Look, uh, I suppose I just want to echo Graham's comments about um, DDGs in their day and, and just how good we all thought they were at the time. I mean, um, I, I was very privileged to serve in DDGs and to that point as an apprentice, um, if I if I think back to our intake, which was about 80-odd, um, I think there was essentially six apprentices went to DDGs. So we, we, we did think we were, we were pretty flashy in those days, to, to Graham's point. Um, and when I first uh, joined uh, Brisbane in 1981, you know, it was even though it was starting to age a little bit, it was still considered, you know, in my humble view, you know, the pride of the fleet is one of those best ships. You know, it was it was that enormous power um, that, that Trevor spoke about. You know, 35,000 shaft horsepower for each shaft. You know, 70 all up. It, it was just amazing how these things would get up to, to sit on the throttles and look down at the at the shaft when you were a throttle watchkeeper. Um, open a valve and just see this huge shaft spin up so quickly. Um, I, I suppose it's an engineering stoker type thing where unless you unless you know what you're looking at, doesn't mean much. But gee whiz, it was pretty impressive and and those speeds that we could get up uh, didn't happen too often on on the poor boilers, but nonetheless, um, you know, full power trials were, were well. You know, we we're always looking to try and reach that 40 knot mark. In fact. Um, and depending on which uh, which reading you took <laughs> on the day, it was uh, it was certainly there. Um, the plants, uh, you know, to Trevor's point, that they, they were really high pressure. There was a there was a lot of noise. There was a lot of temperatures. It was very hot. Uh, interestingly, to you know, to the boiler room, just expanding on on that. Uh, if you're the water tender and you're stuck on the top plates, um, it, it was pretty pretty intense and, and hard on the body. 
Um, you spend a lot of your time, particularly in the tropics, uh, with your head up a, a blower, and I mean a blower is a ventilation trunking that came down at that one corner near the between the boilers, and you, you essentially sat under this blower. But at the end of each watch, um, we used to go out to essentially the starboard side on Brisbane. I don't know if Graham was the same memory or not, but that was called the Stokes Veranda, and you essentially went out with wet overalls, and you sat there until you dried off a bit before you went down the mess um, because that was pretty intense as well. Somewhere over 70% of a DDG was engineering compartments. Um, you, had your, you had your two boiler rooms. Uh, each boiler room had two boilers, so four all up. You had the two engine rooms that came directly off them. Um, you had your emergency diesel spaces. You had your pump spaces. Um, you know, for me, I'm thinking around the 70% mark was made up of, of the engineering compartment. Um, for, for respect to manning, um, each boiler room essentially had a minimum of four people. So you had your steamer, your water tender, and two burnermen. Um, or if you're talking DEs or that, they call them spray punches. We did too, but but essentially they were listed as burnermen. And that was an American um, carryover, if I remember rightly. In the engine room, it was three people. You had your engineering officer watch. You had your um, uh, throttle watch keeper who was on the throttles. He, he manned the he manned the head throttle. I was about to say she, but of course in those days there were no she's. Um, but uh, yeah, he manned the uh, head throttle and the engineering officer watch did the astern. The astern simply because it, it took some precision and craft and skill to understand not to not to actually drag the boilers down to a point where they'd actually black out. Uh, and the, because the astern throttle and arrangements were so. Uh, demanding or inefficient, if you like, and it's only across a couple of blades in the turbine, it would draw enormous amounts of the boiler. And you open them up too quickly, uh, you would you would suck the water level, uh, the steam essentially out of the boiler, and that then affected the water level. And, and, and I tell you, as a steamer, there are exciting times when you were doing um, a, a stern throttle movements, particularly when, when a new captain came on board and, and took many times to, to, to berth alongside. Back downs during the, the replenishment seas, that, that was a different story altogether because you essentially had high power. The boilers were already high powered in, in a sense of uh, high volumes of fuel and air going through them. So to do a back down, you, you're essentially going ahead, uh, throttle open quite wide, probably around the 20 knots up that area. You would then quickly shut off and then you'd open your stern. But because the boilers were firing so high, uh, you know, so the water levels and all that were being fed at a higher level, when you open your a stern throttle, it didn't uh, have such a big effect. You could you could wind that up pretty quickly, um, slow that shaft down to stop until it was rung ahead on, and away you'd go again. Back to the Manning. Um, so four in the boiler room, three in the engine room, plus a chief of the watch made sort of the four for one engine. Uh, duplicated down aft, so what are we up? We're at eight for the boilers, uh, another six for the engine room, so there's 14, 15 people at least every watch just in the engine compartment, uh, in the engineering compartment, 24-7 whenever the ship was at sea, so it was pretty full on. I mean, the other point that um, was quite demanding on, on, on the engineering department was these things didn't shut down, and if that, and the only time we would ever shut down properly was essentially back at Garden Island in my time at least, where you had the ability to put what we call shore steam on or blanket steam onto the boilers. And essentially that was 150 PSI hook up to the ship and that would keep everything uh, to a point where you could do a quick flash up. That's not to say there weren't procedures, and um, I don't want to go on too long, but I find it interesting is that, you know, if you if you knew your stuff, uh, a cold boiler could actually be brought up in maximum time, but it would do 
big damage, you know, because you, you just don't have the right warming processes. So you, you would stress the boilers and the turbines. So essentially with uh, blanket steam or shore steam on at 150, everything's nice, uh, ready to go. Your boilers are all warm, ready to go. The, the t- turbines to some extent had that, but it, it meant that you could turn, um, essentially you had your morning watch would do a flash up. Uh, even though it was four hours, you, you typically have everything up and running within about two, two and a half hours uh, if you had blanket steam and you did it nice and slowly. So that what that what I'm, the point I'm getting to is that when we deployed um, particularly in tropics, uh, you would come alongside and you would leave one boiler on and that one boiler provided all the domestic services for heating and blanket steam to the other boilers, etc. So as a watchkeeper, you would do what we call 24s and that was four on, four off for 24 hours. You'd have the next day off and depending on which watches and how well you handled your sleep, that uh, next 24 off wasn't much of a break. And then on the third day was a normal uh, day working <laughs> So yeah, it was it was pretty pretty full on with respect to um, efforts, and it was very hot. So during twenty fours, one boiler you'd have uh, essentially three people, not the four down the boiler room, and you'd have uh, one in the engine room looking after the VAPs and and the steam generators. Uh, sorry, the, the the power yeah the steam generators for um, power. Uh, another issue being overseas, not getting power, uh, and then you had a cheaper watch type arrangement. So so that was pretty full on from that. Um, specials was a whole different story. That's that's when I say you you then have your cheap tips and, and and the cheap stoker in the day and all those sort of set up at particular positions around the engine room compartments. So you you know, you'd go up towards a 20, 20 plus mark of people ready to to do their jobs. Um, if I can just sort of go on a little bit more, I, you know my experience in the DDGs. Um, and you know it's quite interesting. Like I say I felt quite privileged that we were we were in these great ships. But you know the the thing for the rest of the fleet, and I don't know whether the others would agree, but we, we were actually known as as plastic ships in the, of the day. And it was all because we had this automation in the ballroom, which which I find amusing. And for its time, yes, it was it was probably sophisticated. But apart from Apart from the ACC or that um, combustion, air control combustion system being in place to manage the fuel and air and water on the boilers, most of the other stuff was still hydraulic. It was, it was hands-on valves, you know, proper watchkeeping and all the rest of it. So you know, just, to, just to go on a little bit, I remember pulling up beside um, HMA's Vampire and the, and the joke from the, from the deputy engineer at the time, he leaned over because we were, uh, we were outboard of them. He said, uh, "Did you hear the one? Uh, did you hear the one about um, the DDG and the FFG?" And I said, "What?" And he goes, "Yeah, they they want to know who's going to have the Tupperware party." So essentially, it was always this dig about being a plastic ship, but it was far from that. I can assure you, uh, the hulls were much thicker. The 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 redundancy within the system to watch Graham touched on earlier. That was the most impressive part. You know, if one system went down, you always had redundancy. Everything was duplicated, boilers, engines, the whole lot, uh, 1,200 systems, 600, 150. Um, so there's always always areas to go for there. Um, to the point of, of actually watchkeeping, it was not pleasant for the It was hard on the body. Like I said, uh, you, you didn't have normal conversations. Everyone had earmuffs on. You're yelling at each other. Uh, you were positioned in very hot locations, and I and I can assure you, if anything ever went wrong, uh, particularly for blackouts or whatever, it, it was just completely miserable and not survivable. So you know, we actually had escape routes out, um, proper 
um, shoots out from the bottom of the boiler room to get out in the event of a steam leak. But I actually recall during some sometimes uh, one particular time we had blackout. If you went through that top hatch, uh, you you would be cooked. So essentially you always went down the bottom, went out through the escape hatch. So it, it was quite demanding on the body. Like I said, you, it was very unusual to leave the, particularly the, engine, uh, the boiler room, uh, not with your overalls, fully drenched um, as you as you left the compartment and went up and, and rested for a while to, to cool the body down for that. Now, Randall, just before we, uh, we um, uh come to our conclusion just briefly you mentioned a back down just for our listeners who uh the 99.9 percent of our listeners might not quite know what that is can you just briefly explain what a back down is yeah certainly so a back down is that the replenishment see is that you have your your tanker going along at steady rates um look i'm not i'm not the semen officer and i don't actually recall the the revs that were rung on at the time but it was i assume it was around the sort of 15 14 knot marks that they'll be going along maybe a little bit less um so in order to come alongside, you had to come in at speed, otherwise you'd be drawn into the wash and all that. So you, to break through the wash of the of the oiler, to put it in simple terms, you would come in at a higher speed and then you would have to stop or slow down at least in order to match the speed of the tanker you were lining up with. And that was called a back down. So essentially, as I said, you would have the head throttle rung on it at particular revs because we spoke in revs down the engine room, not in knots. Um, and then we would line up we would go up, we would set those revs, then you'd get the order to go to stop, and the order of stop means uh, a stern throttle, sorry, a head throttle shut, a stern throttle open to stop the shaft, and sometimes you wouldn't actually stop the shaft, but it was too, uh, the way the bridge, you know, control the movement of the ship, you would you would ring on, what I call ring on, open up the valve for the astern steam. I said it was very inefficient, it would draw a lot um, of steam. That would be opened up. Uh, the engine engineering officer of the watch would be really close eye on two things, primarily the, the steam pressure to a point, but also the temperature because that was a good indication of whether things were going right or wrong on the other side. Uh, and then you would shut, a, shut the astern and then try and come up on a head throttle to match the, the tanker beside you. Trevor, that's probably a really good point at which to ask, you know, noting that really the complicated nature of that particular manoeuvre, for example, um, the DDGs were, in fact, the Navy's you know, last steamships. Why was that? Is this complexity part of the issue? Graham, I don't think it was so much the complexity, but, in fact, the steamships had... In fact, all steamships had two notable operational disadvantages compared to the more modern diesel and gas turbine ships. First, as uh, both uh, Randall and Graham mentioned, typically it took two to four hours to start up the boilers, warm through all the steam systems before the ship could leave a wharf or an anchorage. And also, uh, as both mentioned, a relatively large number of operators and maintainers that were required on board to keep the plant running and to keep operating it. For example, about 80 in a DDG compared to only 32, 34 in an FFG marine engineering department. Fortunately, by the uh, late 1960s, early 1970s, a number of nations, including the UK and the USA, had converted aircraft gas turbines to run reliably on diesel fuel and be geared down to connect to a ship propulsion gearbox with self-synchronising clutches. And these aeroderivative gas turbines could also produce about 15 to 25 megawatt power each. So when connected in pairs could produce similar power to a DDG uh, shaft. But 
they required much less space and much less weight than the steam boilers plus turbines. They also took many fewer people to operate and maintain them on board because the major overhaul of the gas turbine unit was in fact conducted ashore in a commercial aero engineering facility and a replacement gas generator could be fitted into the ship within days, in theory. In practice it usually took us a bit longer but still it was a lot quicker than uh, DDG maintenance. Hence our Type 12 destroyer escorts were succeeded by the six FFGs, each propelled by two LM2500 gas turbines to drive a one controllable pitch propeller shaft, and the Charles F. Adams class DDGs by the uh, new Hobart class DDGs, which used a combination of a 16-cylinder diesel or an LM2500 gas turbine driving each of their two shafts. Well, finally, can I ask each of you for your concluding thoughts on steam propulsion in the Navy. And Graeme, let's start with you. I'll only be short with this. I, I understand why they left. The high maintenance, the large crew, high fuel consumption. Uh, but there was something about the ships. The adverse conditions that we all worked under led to a, a really marvellous camaraderie amongst the crew and the engineering department. And there was nothing like standing um, in front of the head throttle at a, on a full power run with the whole ship vibrating, the fans running at maximum speed and a giant rooster tail at the back end of the ship. Thank you. And Randall, how about from you? Yeah, similar sort of thing. I mean... You know, the, the steam era was that full hands-on, a lot of people, you know, the Stoker's Mess alone was 66 people down there in one compartment. And and, and although it was very taxing on the body, the, the bit I loved was the connection with the machinery. Uh, and that's probably weird to some people, but the fact you're in amongst it, you're hands-on, you're opening throttles to Graham's point. Uh, you you know, everything apart from the air-fuel ratio mixture was, was essentially done by hand uh, and you're amongst it and and when you could master it particularly um you know even though there was automation in the boiler we always we always um um, did it break down drills where you didn't have that control. So back to the DE days where you would control the air fuel ratio, your water tender was sitting up there opening and shutting valves to make sure that um, the water was, level was correct. When you mastered that, you know, for me that was, I've got to be honest, you know, 43 years of service, I've never felt more uh, competent and in control than when I was uh, engineering officer of the watch of one engine in control of all uh, all engineering um compartments, uh, you know, that 20-odd people and and being able to not only start up but then finish it and shut it down and walk away and be satisfied that you were able to do those things. So, yeah, felt very empowered with it, um, loved that idea, and, and, and it gave me the ultimate satisfaction of, of all the things I've done. Um, that's the bit I loved about the steam. And Trevor, the final word. I always felt very professionally satisfied to have been MEO of a Charles F. Adams class DDG. As mentioned, they were the epitome of warship steam propulsion in the world at the time. I was very proud of the DDG technical sailors, especially artificers and tradesmen who maintained the very complex and, uh, as mentioned, unforgiving high steam uh, pressure system. Uh, I was also equally pleased to hand over Perth to my successor in full operational 
capability demonstrated in a successful two-yearly full-power trial. I learned a very significant amount about the managing of not only complex propulsion systems, but the highly skilled people, such as Graham Johnson, who was my chief TIF on Perth, and from whom I learnt an enormous amount about the machinery and the people. It was also good to see firsthand the significant advances in steam marine engineering since the World War II designed aircraft carrier HMAS Melbourne II, where I'd started my operational engineering career. Four postings to DDGs was just great. However, given the federal government announcement in September 2021 to procure nuclear-powered submarines for the RAN, it seems that the uh, Adams-class DDGs won't be the last steam vessels in the RAN at all, as the new submarines will have a steam propulsion system with geared turbines, just using a nuclear reactor instead of liquid fuel boilers to create the steam. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for this week, and many thanks to Graham Johnson, Randall Petrie and Trevor Rooting. Now, next week, we will discuss the later propulsion systems that powered Australia's fleet. Today's podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales with the assistance of the University's Creative Media Unit. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us today and if you like this episode, please let other people know about the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.